We have a panel today of very well-informed people who will be looking at the term that's just ended, um, as well as I'll give a thought or two about the term that's about to begin. Um, we will obviously only pick selected cases, as there's no way in the world we could cover everything that happens in one term, so we're not trying to do that. And uh, Leslie Kendrick uh, will be talking about a First Amendment case dealing with um, immoral or scandalous trademarks. So. Keep it, keep it down, if you will. Uh, <laughs> Rich Schrager will talk about First Amendment religion case dealing with the um, cross in Maryland, uh, which was on public land. And then finally, Brian Cannon, the, as it's just been commented, is the first time we've had a non-faculty member ever in my recollection. And we have him because he is probably the country's leading expert on gerrymandering cases. He's very much involved in these cases himself. So welcome, Brian. Nice to have you as well. Um, we will not be doing a, a a Q&A session as such, so when the program is complete, I imagine the panelists don't mind if you want to approach them afterwards with a question that you, you might have. So before we turn to the individual cases that um, my three colleagues will be taking up, um, I want to share with you thoughts about three things. Uh, first, something about patterns and personalities in the most recent court uh, term. Secondly, uh, several major cases other than those that the other panelists will be talking about. And then finally, a thought or two about prospects for the term that will begin, uh, begin next week. As far as patterns and personalities, uh, this has not been a, a blockbuster term. Uh, there were not that many major rulings. Uh, the court stayed away from the sort of hot-button controversial areas for the most part, denying review in cases involving such things as abortion and gay rights. Um, and indeed, cases that did decide, it often decided on somewhat narrow grounds. Uh, there were Two instances when the court overruled precedents, one having to do with property rights, the other having to do with whether states can sue, uh, be sued in courts of other states. There were two other cases, though, in which the court uh, retained precedents, refused to overrule a rather more important precedents, one dealing with double jeopardy and the other dealing with deference to administrative agencies. So all in all, I would say that the court acted uh, in some respects like a court in transition from the sort of era when Kennedy sat on the court to the era of, of Kavanaugh. Um, a few numbers. Um, the, in terms of output, Justice Thomas outdid them all. He wrote a total of 337 pages of opinions. That's majority, concurring, and dissents. Um, in terms of quickness off the plate, getting back and finishing opinions up, um, uh, Justice Ginsburg holds the prize 71 days on the average, which is really pretty fast. She may be the oldest justice, but she's also the fastest. Uh, I was at a dinner in Washington last week at which she was the guest of honor, and the reception she got, I thought I was at a rock concert. I, <laughs> I couldn't believe the unalloyed enthusiasm that people had for her. Um, in terms of unanimous opinions, it was a fairly divided term. Uh, the court was unanimous in 28 cases. That's altogether about 39%. There have been other Roberts Court terms when there have been more unanimity. Uh, in terms of reversals of lower courts, as would not surprise you, I suspect, it was the Ninth Circuit that took it on the chin. Altogether, there were uh, 14 
decisions from the Ninth Circuit in the Supreme Court, and they were reversed in 12 of them. They probably overlooked the other two. Uh, personalities on the court, as, as all of us know, uh, this was the term in which uh, Justice Kavanaugh took Justice Kennedy's seat. That appointment was expected to shift the court to the right. It was also expected to thrust um, Chief Justice Roberts into the ideological center of the court, and both of those things did, in fact, happen. I think they were fair predictions. But Kavanaugh played a somewhat, for me at least, a somewhat unexpected uh, role in the court's balance of power. Um, indeed, in many ways, his voting pattern was not all that distinguishable from that of uh, Chief Justice Roberts. So if you like to talk about swing justices, which is a somewhat misleading concept, but if you like that idea, it may well be that uh, Kavanaugh is approaching that role. Certainly, um, Kavanaugh was the justice of the nine of them, the one most often in the majority. This term, he was in the majority in 91% of cases, which is quite striking, Roberts being next with 85%. And if you think about pairings of justices, who agrees with whom, um, Kennedy, I'm sorry, Kavanaugh and Roberts uh, held that prize with 94%, pretty high rate of agreement just passing Ginsburg and Sotomayor, who had 93%. Obviously, it's interesting to talk about Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch. Uh, they agree a lot on pretty important things like gerrymandering, uh, the census case, death penalty, religious rights, abortion rights. There are a number of areas where they seem to be in agreement, but uh, there are some differences. They're not by any means Bobsy twins. Uh, Kavanaugh is as likely to be in agreement with, let's say, Kagan as he is with, uh, with Gorsuch. And I mentioned that he was in the majority the more than any other justice. Now, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have remarkably similar biographical uh, sketches. They went to Georgetown Prep. They both went, both went to Ivy League law schools. Both were law clerks to Justice Kennedy. They both worked for the Bush administration. Uh, they both were named to the Court of Appeals in the same year, 2006. Both were on the sort of favored list of the Federalist Society. So you could expect some ideological similarity. But there, there are enough differences that make me wonder if, as time passes, we're going to find that um, Gorsuch is more like Scalia was when he was on the court, and Kavanaugh may, in some respects, be more like Justice Kennedy. Um, the agreement rate between Kavanaugh and uh, Gorsuch was about 70% in the past term, which for two justices appointed by the same president uh, in his first term uh, is a, f a fairly low percentage of agreement. Uh, Gorsuch actually agreed the most with Justice Thomas, 81% altogether. I think he will prove to be on the court an originalist like Justice Thomas. He certainly, along with Thomas, seems to be um, one of the justices most inclined to overturn precedent. <clears throat> How about Chief Justice Roberts? I mean, it is the Roberts Court, and not only in name, but maybe now, in fact, in, in, in practice. Uh, the past term might be said to be the term in which uh, Roberts took charge. Uh, for example, uh, he made his influence patently obvious in a stunning pair of cases. Um, they were decided on the same day last term, one involving the census, the other involving partisan gerrymandering. Both were five to four decisions, and in the um, census case, uh, he joined the uh, liberal wing of the court, and in the 
gerrymandering case joined the uh, conservative wing of the court. So he was the decisive vote in both cases and uh, the only member of the court to be in the majority in both of those cases. Now, conservatives are quick, quick to be uh, upset about Chief Justice Roberts, you remember when he cast the deciding vote in the Affordable Care Act case and how people said he strayed the reservation. Um, and one conservative, the president of the Committee for Justice, was quoted as saying, the census decision will surely deepen the impression that Roberts is the new Justice Kennedy rather than the reliable fifth vote conservatives um, hoped for and liberals feared. So um, in both of these cases that I mentioned, census and partisan gerrymandering, the uh, dissenters complained that Roberts' vote was uh, warped by, by, by political considerations. Um, so Roberts, it's interesting that in the census case where he, you may recall, somewhat reluctantly at the end of the case, said that in effect that the the rationale that was being advanced by the administration for adding the question to the to the census question uh, in Roberts' term seems to have been contrived. And compare that, if you will, to his opinion in the um, Trump previous decision in the uh, Trump travel ban case in which he talked about Trump's pu public statements, nevertheless was willing to set those aside and say that because the ban was neutral on its face, he would vote to uphold it. So I, th I think that whatever you may say, one should remember that Roberts, by and large, is a mainstream conservative legal movement chap. You think of cases like uh, D.C. versus Heller or uh, Citizens United or Shelby County or cases like, like that. So those are observations on the term. Secondly, a comment about major decisions. We will hear about three of them in a moment. But I simply want to mention that besides those, we had the um, census opinion, which was, after all, politically important. We had the um, race discrimination. There was a 7-2 to two decision in which the court held that uh, this was a case involving peremptory challenges to, to jurors and the court held that the Constitution had been violated when uh, peremptory challenges had been used to exclude um, potential black jurors in a Georgia uh, in a, a death, death penalty case. Uh, double jeopardy, I mentioned how the court against this seven to two um, refused to overrule precedents holding that to try a particular person for an offense in both state and the federal courts does not um, violate the prohibition on double jeopardy. Finally, one other case that interests a, a non-constitutional case in the area of antitrust. Um, I was intrigued when the court allowed a major antitrust action against Apple to go forward. And um, here we had Kavanaugh joining the four liberals on the court to make that possible. Um, and in general, the Roberts Court has not been very friendly to consumers, so that case seemed to be something of an aberration. Uh, a comment about abortion cases. Um, obviously, we know that Justice Kennedy was one of the three, the concurring justices in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, making possible the upholding of the core premise of Roe versus Wade and requiring a showing uh, you could not place an undue burden on access to abortions. And Kennedy, of course, is now off the court, replaced by Kavanaugh. 
And I think there are three justices on the court, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, who would probably jump at the chance to overrule Roe versus Wade, which leaves us to wonder whether uh, where Roberts and Kavanaugh will come down on that. I think that's unclear. Uh, Roberts, for example, has proved himself to be, in at least some cases, something of an institutionalist, which is to say he might be slow to have the court rush to overrule Roe versus Wade. And there were cases this term, one from Alabama, one from Indiana, where the court denied review of uh, lower court opinions that had struck down restrictive measures in, in both of those states. So I think the court is going slowly if maybe Roe versus Wade will fall to the ax someday, but my prediction is not, not very soon. Um, Trump won at one, one important case this, uh, this uh, summer in, in July. The court gave Trump a victory in his effort to build his wall on the Mexican border. Um, in, and the court, in an unsigned one-paragraph opinion, seemed to doubt the uh, standing of the challengers of Sierra Club to, to bring the case they had brought, which probably suggests that in the end the conservatives will prevail on, the administration will prevail in that particular case. Um, finally, um, three cases I thought you might like to watch in the, in the term that begins next week. Uh, first is a gay rights case. It's a statutory case, application of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and the court will decide whether or not that statute protects gay and transgender workers from discrimination as it protects, uh, let's say, on the grounds of race or, or gender. The EEOC has held that the act does apply, and the Trump administration disagrees. So this is a curious case in which up to this point you've had government, federal government lawyers on both sides of the case, one arguing for the statute's application and the other arguing against. This case will be the court's first test of a gay rights uh, LGBT uh, proposition since Kennedy's retirement. And he, as you may know, mattered enormously. He wrote I think all of the court's major gay rights opinions, starting with Lawrence versus Texas and coming right on through Obergefell. Second case to watch uh, is one that's uh, going to be close, I think, and that is there is a Second Amendment case. It's very curious that since uh, D.C. versus Heller was decided over a decade ago, how the court has just simply not been taking Second Amendment cases. It, uh, Justice Thomas has been very upset. He calls the Second Amendment an orphan of the court's jurisprudence. But the court seems to have turned down various opportunities to place a, a gloss on, on, on Heller. The case that's been pending is from New York City, where New York City is a very tough ordinance, or has had. Um, uh, it allows residents to carry uh, licensed uh, uh, guns from their premises to firing ranges within the city, but not to second homes or firing ranges outside the city. It's very, even if the firearm is just, uh, the ammunition is in one place and the firearm is in another, needless to say, that's been attacked on Second Amendment grounds. The district court and the Second Cir Circuit both upheld the, um, the New York ordinance, but you can imagine how nervous New York City is with the change in personnel on the court with Kavanaugh now in place of Justice Kennedy. 
So the court granted cert in this case, but since it did, New York City has repealed or amended the ordinance, basically giving the challengers to the ordinance what they had asked for. So now the New York City has filed a motion asking the court to declare the, uh, the case moot and therefore throw it out. And the court was meeting in conference yesterday to decide whether or not how they would act on that petition. And as far as I know, this afternoon, I've not heard that they've issued any order yet. Finally, the third case to follow, politically very important, and that's the one that involves DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals a case that involves executive power. And it might, from one standpoint, seem to be fairly simple, namely that uh, the DACA program was created by Obama in the year 2012. Uh, President Trump has tried to overturn to end the program as of 2017. Uh, there was a deal that I think was in the works between Trump and, and Congress that collapsed when Trump insisted on uh, some changes to immigration laws and also billions of dollars for the for the wall that Congress wouldn't accept. The Ninth Circuit ruled against Trump saying that even though in general one administration can overturn the action of an early administration, there were not proper legal grounds for this, this particular action. And the Supreme Court's decision, whichever way it goes, is likely to come down at a time where it will uh, I, I suspect, royal the 2020 presidential election. So there's a lot to watch, and of course the court will have its first Monday in October as of next week. I'm sure they'll be adding some important cases to the docket, so it'll be a, a pretty exciting place to, 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 to be studying. So that gives you the sort of background and context, and with that, let's turn with great anticipation to the comments of my colleagues, Leslie Kendrick, Rich Schrager, and Brian Cannon. Thank you very much. So I'm going to talk about Yonku versus Brunetti. This is a case that represents a clash between two legal areas that long coexisted, and that's federal trademark protection on one hand and the First Amendment on the other. So. Um, when we're talking about these two things, we've got, we've got a, a couple different uh, things happening that have existed for a long time. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Lanham Act, and then we'll talk a little bit about the First Amendment. So uh, the Lanham Act is a federal uh, trademark law that provides uh, trademark protection um, for folks who want to register their trademarks within the federal system. Now, uh, if you have a, a mark, you have uh, something that you claim uh, conveys something on your behalf, you don't necessarily have to register it with the federal system. There are common law trademark protections that can apply to you, but there are certain more robust protections that come along with registering your trademark under the federal system, and the Lan Lanham Act governs uh, when you can do that. And there are a few different conditions uh, that apply here. And the one that's at issue in this case, uh, the Lanham Act provides, um, it bars registration, it bars federal registration of immoral or scandalous trademarks. So if your mark is deemed to be immoral or scandalous, you will not be able to receive federal trademark protection. At issue in this case is a mark, um, a, a fashion designer a clothing mark, um, it's an acronym that's supposed to stand for Friends You Can't Trust, and it's F-U-C-T, which if you pronounce it, is fucked. 
So the, the mark that's sought is for this brand that, if you pronounce it, is fucked. And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, under the Lanham Act, this is determined to be uh, scandalous or, or immoral, and they're denied uh, trademark protection. So when they're denied trademark protection, Fucked goes and, uh, and elevates the case to the next level and says, uh, we should be able to get federal trademark protection because this ban on prohibition on federal marks, uh, federal registration for marks that are scandalous or immoral, this violates the First Amendment. So that brings us to the First Amendment side of this. So the First Amendment has lots of different moving parts, and you know I'm just talking about the speech part here, and, and Professor Schrager's gonna talk a little bit about um, the religion clauses, but within speech, there's all sorts of things going on. But one thing is um, a very strong uh, 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 suspicion of, and, and kind of presumption against, uh, any form of regulation on the part of the government that looks like viewpoint discrimination. And the Supreme Court put this uh, very clearly and concisely in an important case, Mosley, in 1972, where they said, above all else, the First Amendment means that government has no power to restrict expression because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. And that's, that's kind of a long, long laundry list of things that sounds somewhat similar and somewhat different, subject matter, ideas, content. There's lots of different stuff in there, but one important part of this is the idea that for the government to penalize speech uh, because of its viewpoint is offensive to the First Amendment. Now, you might think about this Lanham Act thing that says you can't register an, uh, uh, an immoral or scandalous uh, mark and think about the First Amendment and think, well, it looks like there's a clear tension here. But in point of fact, uh, the Lanham Act and this idea of uh, suspicion toward content and viewpoint discrimination, they have coexisted for a really long time. Lanham Act has been around since 1946. I would say, uh, to the extent that you can characterize the first modern First Amendment jurisprudence with any one thing, this, this suspicion about viewpoint discrimination has been front and center. It's been, for, for decades, it's been cleanly articulated by the courts since uh, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and yet these two things coexisted for a long time. So um, partly I'm gonna be unpacking why, why they did coexist and now, now they're no longer coexisting. So in this particular case, it winds up with the Supreme Court, with the, with the Federal Circuit. So trademark cases end up in the Federal Circuit, and the Federal Circuit agreed um, with the marks holder that, in fact, the, the Lanham Act, this provision of, this, of the Lanham Act did offend the First Amendment um, and, and should not be enforced. And the Supreme Court ends up agreeing with that and striking down this part of the Lanham Act uh, on the basis of the First Amendment. And in some ways it was no surprise that they did that because although this clash between the Lanham Act and the First Amendment is relatively recent, this is not the first skirmish. There was a case in 2017 um, called Mattal versus Tam uh, that dealt with a different part of the Lanham Act but uh, another part of Section 2A of the Lanham Act. This one um, barred trademark protection for messages that might disparage people, whether living or dead, or institutions, beliefs, or national symbols. Um, and in that case, uh, an Asian American dance rock band called The Slants challenged that uh, their denial of, of trademark registration on the basis of that Lanham Act provision, and they also prevailed. The court, uh, the Supreme Court, struck down that provision of the Lanham Act 
um, on, on First Amendment grounds. So that had already happened, and I think once that happened, people thought this case was likely to come out the way that it did, and in fact, uh, that is what occurred. So we wind up with an opinion here from the court. It's an opinion written by Justice Kagan. It's joined by Thomas, Ginsburg, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. So you note, you know, to the extent that people sort of boil this down to uh, just sort of crude poli-sci signifiers about who, you know, who was appointed, appointed by Republicans and who was appointed by Democrats, this is a mixed group of, of justices here. And that's fairly common, I would say, in this day and age when it comes to First Amendment speech cases. There's interesting relationships there. Um, but this, this motley crew um, uh, uh, joins this opinion of Justice Kagan that says, yeah, this is viewpoint discrimination. This is obviously viewpoint discrimination. If your mark expresses something moral, you can register it. If it expresses something immoral, you can't register it. Um, same with scandalous versus non-scandalous. Clearly here the government is favoring moral messages over immoral messages, non-scandalous messages over scandalous messages. That's textbook viewpoint discrimination. We're going to strike this down. Um, and interestingly, the entire court joins that viewpoint, joins that position with regard to the immoral part of the Lanham Act provision. So Alito files a concurring opinion uh, that, that he was already joining the majority, but he files a concurrence that says, yeah, viewpoint discrimination, that's really bad, and free speech is under attack everywhere, and we should really be um, on the lookout for any attempts to erode free speech protections because um, because you know, free speech is under attack. Sotomayor says, well, look, immoral, I get that. Uh, there's no way around the idea that it, the word immoral, uh, that there's viewpoint discrimination there. But there should be some limiting. There should be some sort of limiting construction that the court could put on the idea of scandalous. And it should be limited, really, to things that are just lewd or profane, basically words like fucked. Right? That's a word that we should not allow um, trademark registration for. And the very beginning of her uh, opinion, she says, you know, we're going to see the floodgates open, and we're going to see bunches, bunches more uh, trademark registration applications come in for things that say this and worse. And there's not going to be any way for the federal government to stop them. So the court should have limited, uh, they, they should have preserved the scandalous provision and tried to construe it in some way that limited it basically to curse words. And Breyer and Roberts have their own concurrence, you know, partial concurrences, partial dissent, saying the same thing, saying immoral, uh, that has to go, but scandalous should be narrowly construed uh, to suggest something uh, that, that you, can't, you cannot have something like this particular uh, word. So how do we wind up in this space? Because these two things, Lanham Act and the First Amendment, existed for a long time without people thinking that the, uh, the prohibition on, on content discrimination and viewpoint discrimination uh, had anything to do with this Lanham Act, uh, these Lanham Act principle or, um, uh, components that now have been struck twice, one, one in Mattal and one in this case. So the story here is, is a story about the ever-expanding scope of the First Amendment freedom of speech. So uh, the court has spoken very categorically for a really long time in the, in the way it did in the early 70s in Mosley about above all else, the First Amendment means the government can't do this. But that's always meant within certain spheres where the First Amendment is operating, the government can't do this. And for a long time, it was just taken for granted that the Lanham Act was not part of that sphere. 
that the government could regulate there with a freer hand than it could in other places. So uh, the government can't arrest you for having a jacket that says, fuck the draft. That was well established in Cohen versus California in 1971. You can't be arrested for disorderly conduct for just bearing that slogan on your jacket. But do they have to give you federal trademark protection uh, for your fucked uh, trademark? No. Um, and those two ideas were sort of, they could coexist at the same time. Now. No one's, everyone sort of thinks that the First Amendment has a, it, there's no reason to say that it doesn't apply in a particular place unless you can clearly point to a reason that it doesn't apply. So it's just been kind of expanding and now it's, it's, hit, uh, it's hit the Lanham Act. And some people might think that's good, some people might think that's bad. I'm, I'm not suggesting that um, the, the First Amendment existed in its optimal state at some particular point. The entire history of the 20th century in the First Amendment is a history of expansion. Um, but, you know, we might wonder whether this is someplace it actually needed to go or not. If the worries that the, that the court uh, had when it originally articulated these sorts of concerns about viewpoint discrimination, if those are really at issue um, in, in the trademark area. And the court sort of doesn't engage with that, nor do they engage with the idea, which one, uh, one could take this view, that um, federal trademark protection is a type of privilege and the government has a freer hand in deciding when to bestow that privilege. Uh, Justice Roberts, in his opinion, is really the only one who deals with that. Just a final note, uh, I think the, the court's going to have to deal with this in a variety of different other places. So another place that it's dealt with it recently um, is in license plates, because you might not be surprised to know uh, that the government also won't let you put this word on your license plate. You, can't have, you cannot put the F-bomb on your license plate. Uh, the government's not going to sit by and say, oh, sure, you know, freedom of speech, you're allowed to do that. But that, that also, as, as people start to see the First Amendment applying everywhere, that became a tough thing for courts to have to describe uh, why it is that the government can uh, limit what you say on your license plate. And you know, Virginia has this long list of rejected slogans where people are very crafty at trying to say something <laughs> lewd or profane on their license plates and they have people who sit there and say, oh, not that, not that, definitely not that. And uh, the, court, the, the, court, the Supreme Court finally dealt with this, and the way they got around this problem on that was to say that the license plates are government speech. They actually were dealing with the, the design of the license plate, the, the sort of sponsored license plates that you see that are you know, pro-kids schools or pro-wildlife or whatever. There was one, the Sons of Confederate Veterans wanted to do one of these, and, the, and Texas said, you know, no, no thanks. And the court said they're allowed to do that, but in, in saying that, they, they were making a, a point also about the slogans on the license plate, and the way they got around this First Amendment thing was to say, that's all government speech, that's the government talking. So, you know, whatever vanity plate you have on your car, apparently it's the government that's saying that, uh, not you. So you can see that there are places where we might think the government has some leeway to get, engage in some forms of, of discrimination and content. Once we see the First Amendment as something that occupies all those fears, we have to explain why that is. Um, and in this court, they just go for it and say, yeah, you, you, you can't do that here, uh, just as you can't do it on the public streets. The vice dean gets all the cool cases. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. Is this, this is on, right? Uh, <laughs> right. So um, <clears throat> it turns out my, the, the case I'm talking about is also about government speech. So it's a great segue, actually. And, and the, the question in the case is, when the government speaks, are there any limits to what it can say? Um, traditionally, there's been um, at least one limit. Uh, and there are questions about some others. But the, the one limit has been the establishment clause of the US Constitution. 
Constitution, which, which at least uh, before this case, uh, put some limitations, and maybe after this case we'll have to see some limitations on the types of religious speech that the government could engage in. And this case is, is about that. So the, the case is American Legion versus American Humanist Association, and it's colloquially called the Bladensburg Cross case, and it's about, uh, uh, the, the case is about a 40-foot cross that was um, erected to memorialize uh, World War I uh, soldiers who had died in that, in, in that uh, conflict um, um, and had stood in Bladensburg, Maryland uh, since, since it was erected. Um, it's, a, it's publicly owned and it's publicly maintained um, and it's a big Latin cross in the middle of a busy intersection. This was challenged. Um, uh, by the American Humanist Association, um, and um, uh, the case, uh, the court was faced with the question of whether a, the a Latin cross of this kind is uh, violative of the Establishment Clause. Uh, um, uh, uh, the, the court ruled that it was not, and that was not unexpected, actually. The court has been moving in the direction of uh, allowing more religious content to government speech uh, in, the, in, the, in the past couple of decades, and more generally allowing more support of religion, um, and sometimes specifically Christian religion. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about that, but l let me talk about the case a little bit and the background. Um, um, the Establishment Clause um, was not applied to the states until fairly recently. It was in the it was in the in the middle of the 20th century when the Establishment Clause first gets applied. Uh, um, remember, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. So it's, uh, Justice Thomas actually is of the view that the First Amendment uh, doesn't really apply to this to the states. Um, that's a minority view and continues to be so, but. But it's it, it is one that that Justice Thomas has hold, uh, holds, um, and. Some of the first cases were cases about school prayer. Those were the big cases in the 60s, um, and the court actually struck down school prayer, um, which was uh, uh, actually a pretty controversial and dramatic um, uh, move, uh, uh, and still in some cases is dramatic. In the 70s and 80s, we had cases about creches and other kinds of religious displays during holidays, and the court struggled uh, to figure out how to assess those kinds of displays. Um, for a while, Justice O'Connor um, had a test called the endorsement test, which didn't quite pick up uh, a full appreciation of the court, but, but seemed like one that might be workable, which was um, the government can't convey messages that send uh, a message of outsider status to uh, individuals that make them feel like second-class citizens. And that was the test that was sometimes applied in conjunction with some other tests that the, the Supreme Court applied in Establishment Clause cases to deal with cases in which governments had sponsored re specific religious displays of various kinds. Um, this got a little messy, so the court would start looking at, well, was the crash with the baby Jesus next to reindeer, next to a menorah, next to a Christmas tree? What does all this mean? Next to some lights? 
And how do we figure out whether this is endorsing a certain religious view, whether it's sending a message of outsider status? There was lots of criticism of the endorsement test. And more generally, the, the tests of, of the Establishment Clause, namely what's called the Lemon Test, which was a test that was, was set up to, to deal with funding of religious institutions by the government and look to the purpose of the funding, the effects of the funding, the entanglement of government with religion, those kinds of things. But there was dissatisfaction with these and this dissatisfaction has always sort of been part of a broader cultural divide about what are the appropriate symbols uh, that that government can uh, use in uh, in terms of religious symbols. What is the appropriate place of government in funding religious schools and other religious institutions? And what's what's appropriate uh, more recently in terms of allowing for exemptions from generally applicable laws for religious people? That's really the three areas in which we see religion clause jurisprudence uh, uh, in its most uh, conflicted. Some of those are establishment clause cases, some of those are free exercise clause cases. In any case, we got to uh, more recent cases involving things like uh, Ten Commandments monuments. Um, Judge Roy Moore famously put a giant Ten Commandments monument in the Alabama Supreme Court. They took that out. But there were some Ten Commandments cases in the Supreme Court and the court wasn't quite sure how to deal with these. Justice Breyer turned out to be the swing justice on those cases. And he, he had, they had two Ten Commandments cases. He upheld one Ten Commandments and he struck down another one. One was in a court, in a courthouse or in a, in a city hall. One was on the Texas uh, kind of legislative grounds. And he didn't have much of a theory, except what he said was, the Texas Monument has been around for a long time, and if we take it down, people are going to get mad. That was basically the theory. He was pretty actually explicit about it. He didn't quite say people would get mad, but he said they might react to us ordering all these monuments to be taken down, all these Ten Commandments monuments, because there's a bunch of them all over the country. People might react to that by getting angry about religion, and that might generate the very divisiveness that the Establishment Clause or the First Amendment is supposed to prevent. So we shouldn't contribute to that divisiveness by telling local governments or state governments that they have to take down their Ten Commandments monuments. Um, so that sets the stage a little bit for this case, um, not a Ten Commandments, a, a, a large cross. There's also a, a prior case, a recent case called Town of Greece, in which a New York uh, town opened its, uh, the, its city council, its town council meetings with, with prayers. Now, the way they did this is they invited local clergy to come in and give these prayers. It turns out there really were only mainly Christian clergy in the town limits. Other clergy were outside of the town limits. Um, the Jews were outside of the town limits, apparently, or the, the Muslims were not in the town. So they didn't get invited. And it turns out most of the prayers, therefore, were Christian prayers. And they were quite sectarian. That is, they invoked Jesus Christ. They made statements about the Savior, et cetera, et cetera, in 
in right before the town council would uh, would do its business, and the court upheld those in a kind of a funny opinion. Justice Kennedy saying he was on the court at the time, saying uh, different from the license plate case. This is not government speech. This is just the private speech of the ministers who have been invited up here to speak. And we can't really regulate what they say. Um, uh, Justice Kagan has quite a powerful dissent in that, in that case. Um, and so that, that's a 5-4 case that sets the, the backdrop to this case. This case seems to be easier for the justices. Breyer joins the majority here, and so does Kagan, actually. And so you get a pretty lopsided victory for the uh, Bladensburg Cross, which is upheld as, um, as constitutional under the Establishment Clause. But there are two notable things, and they're quite interesting if you take a look at this opinion. The first notable thing about the, the opinion is that the Justice Alito writes, writes for the court, um, and it's a little fractured. There's some pieces, you know, that, that, that aren't, that don't all fit together. But Justice Alito goes through and explains how the cross is, is not a religious symbol. Now that sounds a little strange, but basically what he says is, well, it's a religious symbol in some contexts, but in this context, in World War I memorials, the cross became kind of a secular symbol of, the, of memorializing the war dead. And he, in fact, goes through some cultural history of the World War I era or the post-World War I era to describe how across different communities, the cross became, um, became in many ways secularized. And he observes, in, in, uh, while doing so, he, is, he, he makes the following set of observations. He says, meanings change over time. And sometimes we, the meaning of a, of a symbol becomes different over time. And he says, sometimes the purpose of a symbol changes over time too. And sometimes it's hard to figure out what the purpose of a symbol was or the meaning of a symbol is. All of this, that, when he's talking about these things, about meaning and messages and what, what, what kind of meaning is conveyed by certain symbols, a lot of this is to, to cast doubt on an endorsement kind of test, or a purpose-informed test, or a meaning-informed test. Because he wants to say, we should probably get out of the business as, as a court. We should probably get out of the business of trying to ascertain the meanings, or the purpose, or the intent of these kinds of symbols. He doesn't say we're going to get out of it entirely, but he says, well, and and the court comes up with a rule, which is that there will be a presumption of constitutionality for long-standing practices, symbolic practices like these. He doesn't tell us what long-standing are. This monument, this cross, is pretty long-standing. And this looks a little like Breyer's uh, test in the, in the Texas Ten Commandments case, where he says, well, it's been there for a long time, so it's okay. It also seems to be a way of saying, well, we're not sure about new crosses. So if you go, if Roy Moore or somebody else goes around and starts putting up crosses on, tops, on, on the top of uh, schools or public buildings, uh, courthouses or city halls, new crosses, we might think those are different, although we're not quite sure why exactly. 
it sounds like long-standing practices have attained a kind of secular meaning. They don't mean exactly what you think they might mean, um, and so they're okay. The second thing that's really interesting about the opinion is that normally what you would look at when you're looking at the messages sent by government speech, the messages conveyed, is you'd look at to see what folks who aren't part of the dominant religion think that message is, right? The, the minority religionists out there or the people without any religious commitments and they would look at it and do they think it's a cross? Do they think it's religious? Is this something that's offensive or, or alienating to them? But the court doesn't do that. What the court does is say, um, similar to what Breyer said in the Texas case, but not exactly the same. The court says, what's the message that we would send if we were to order the removal of the cross? What's the message that we would send? Not the message of the cross itself, but the message that we would send or the court would send in its action in removing the cross or ordering its removal. And they, the court says quite clearly, that could express hostility to religion, it would express hostility to religion or could be understood as hostility to religion, which is contrary to the neutrality that is required of the establishment clause between religion and non-religion or between religions. So this is a pretty clever move, and I want you to see what it is. It's basically saying the establishment clause, it doesn't quite say this, but it gets close-ish. The establishment clause requires us to maintain the cross, as opposed to requiring us to order it to, to be removed. That's pretty dramatic. It doesn't quite say that. What it says is, well, there is an establishment clause value to not ordering this cross to be removed. But basically it says the majority religion and the majority culture, this majority civic culture, has um, has a role, and if they would feel like this was hostility to religion by removing the cross, then that's going to be contrary to Establishment Clause values, which, which seems to suggest that the Establishment Clause is then a shield that protects existing religious practices of the government, or at least ones that have a long history. And so this raises some... Um, for me, it raises some concerns. It raises some questions. One question is, what test are you going to use to figure out what to do with new, new crosses or new things? Is it just that we've had crosses before, therefore we can have crosses again wherever they happen to be, or Ten Commandments, or any of these other things? Um, what about prayer in school and other kinds of things, which, we, which had a long history until they were until they were uh, overturned, um, and, uh, and lots of other religious practices, especially in a polarized political environment in which religion has become part of that polarization to some extent. Um, some have offered a historical test. Well, are they historically, were these, were these practices historically grounded? It's not clear that's the test, but there are some justices who think that no religious symbols are off uh, off base for the government. That the, the government can speak in any register it wants religiously as long as it doesn't coerce individuals to practice a certain religion. This is not the majority view, but it's becoming much more 
plausible that the court may continue to move in the direction of saying, hmm, these religious practices, even though they're majoritarian religious practices, and even if they embrace the central religious symbol of a particular religion, are fine. And we're going to allow much more uh, leeway for the government to speak in a religious register. They've done this with funding as well. Religious funding is now much more broadly acceptable, in fact, required in certain instances when before it had been disallowed. That has a big change in the Establishment Clause. And also the court, you're probably aware of many cases in which the court is dealing with religious exemptions, and they're very amenable to exemptions to existing laws for religious persons. This has moved the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause into kind of uncharted territory, and it is a repudiation of a separatist kind of uh, uh, constitutional doctrine that had prevailed before this court, uh, before the Roberts Court, and before, in some ways, the Rehnquist Court. So we're going to see more of this, I think. Um, the elite, especially Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh seem to be interested in these kinds of cases, and they seem to be willing to to uh, expand the realm in which government can speak in a religious uh, register. Thanks. Um, so uh, I want to I talk to you. We've had an interesting decade um, at the Supreme Court with regard to redistricting and voting rights in general. And I want to kind of paint that uh, picture a little bit and, uh, and, and kind of think of it as a, a bit of a yellow brick road we've been on and we just got to see the wizard in June and there's a bit to be learned from there. So, but let's, let's, let's go back. The, the two cases that ultimately we're gonna be talking about that were merged into one, one is the Maryland case, uh, Lamone v. Benezek, uh, and the second one was the North Carolina case, which was Rucho v. Common Cause. Um, the, uh, but, but before we, we get into that, when I was in law school, uh, Kennedy had just issued the V. v Jubilee uh, opinion in which there was a split on the court as to whether uh, partisan gerrymandering or political gerrymandering was unconstitutional. And there were four judge, uh, justices who said, no way, it's totally fine. It's, uh, the founders put these kind of political questions in the hands of the most political people. That's where it goes. There were four on the, uh, the four liberals thought, well, for sure, this is a violation of your right, uh, you know, a, a fundamental right in our, in our uh, country. Uh, and then there was Kennedy in the middle saying, uh, maybe there's like a math test that could help us here, right? And, and he, so he, he sided with the, with the liberals in saying that it was unconstitutional, but just I don't know how to tell you, I don't know how to call balls and strikes on that, right? And it, it is a real problem for the court, uh, and that put us on this, this, this kind of quest um, where a ton of very, very, very smart lawyers spent a ton of nonprofit money and time and effort and energy to find the, the, the solution that justice Kennedy was after. Um, and I think, I think what I, I was in a, a meeting with a lot of these lawyers and some of the funders and some of the other folks who are advocates like I am uh, in New York right after uh, Kennedy had announced his retirement. And one of the lawyers remarked, well, thank God Kennedy's gone now because I don't have to be disappointed by him anymore. Uh, which I think is a good way to, to look at Justice Kennedy's term in regards to this. But let me, let me back up to, uh, to 2013 uh, in Shelby County v. Holder. This is not a redistricting case, but it is an important case in voting rights, right? The Voting Rights Act um, has section two. Mostly that's what we're dealing with in subsequent 
uh, redistricting cases. We'll talk about that. But it was about section five and, uh, and preclearance and the, the formula in section four by which you get on what I call the naughty list where you have to be uh, pre-cleared. Um, in, in, in that case, uh, um, they, they basically gutted the formula. They put, kicked it back to Congress to say, you guys come up with a better formula. I don't think anybody's holding their breath for that to happen anytime soon. Um, but, but it has had some ripple effects, even uh, practically. So first of all, it's going to have some ripple effects in 2020, where for the first time in a very long time, a lot of states and localities' maps will not have to be pre-cleared. Um, Two, uh, there's been a huge uh, increase in concern among voting rights advocates. If you think about people that are not just in my space, but broadly in the voting rights community, specifically folks who are advocating for communities of color, this is a huge red flag. I mean, this is a loss anyway, but it's also a red flag for, for what might be coming. And third, I think it emboldened a whole series of you know, restrictive voting laws that, that came after. Um, I do want to mention with Shelby County, though, is I'm not sure pre-clearance with regard to racial gerrymandering did that good of a job. And here's what I mean about this. All the cases I'm going to talk about, about racial gerrymandering, and I'm going to grossly oversimplify and blow through them in order to get the, paint the picture here, but all those other cases were pre-cleared. And in fact, the two Virginia cases, we've had two different sets of maps struck down in Virginia on racial gerrymandering grounds. Not only were they pre-cleared, they were pre-cleared by the Obama Department of Justice. And the person, the lawyer who actually signed off on the piece of paper, I couldn't believe this when I saw it, was actually Tom Perez, who's now the head of the DNC. And he will go on about how bad of a racial gerrymander these, these things were, and yet he pre-cleared them, right? So it's an interesting question of the, the effectiveness of, of, uh, of the Voting Rights Act pre-clearance in this space. So, <clears throat> all right, um, racial gerrymandering. Uh, there were two cases in Virginia, but also there were cases in Texas, Georgia, and North Carolina. Mostly we're talking about African Americans being screwed over by racial gerrymandering. In Texas, it was Latinos. The court couldn't figure that one out. But in the, all the other cases, especially dealing with African Americans, uh, the court showed a remarkable bit of bipartisanship in a lot of cases. Um, and even some surprises. Uh, so I want to want to walk through um, three sets of cases. One is the Alabama Legislative Black Caucus versus Alabama. That's 2015. Um, SCOTUS reversed the lower court ruling, and basically the, the 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 TLDR version of this case is they've changed us from a system whereby we always had to think about majority minority districts. Right, you have to have at least 55 or 50 percent. African Americans of voting age in this district or more. And even a retrogression principle, like we have to, if you, if you previously had 53%, you sure as heck can't go down to 52 or 51%. Like that was a real concern and it's, a, it's been a moving target, but that's where it was. And this is the case that really I think uh, solidifies us on the path of not majority minority districts, but minority opportunity districts. And that's a huge change, and I think has a hugely beneficial effect. It's something I'm, I think is really important. And what I mean by uh, minority opportunity is this. So I live in the fourth congressional district of Virginia. I live in Richmond. And in Richmond, uh, the congressional district that I'm in is 62-ish uh, percent Democrat, but it's 42% African American. And in Virginia, and like in most cases in the South, African Americans vote overwhelmingly with the Democratic Party, therefore they control the nominating process, therefore the Democrat wins, as long as there's not 
kind of racially polarized voting or what you might call voting white flight, whereas if the Democrats nominate a black person that my wife and I, who are both white and live in the city and Democrats, would all of a sudden vote for the Republican just because the Republican's white. As long as that doesn't happen, and that's not really a thing in Richmond, uh, the, that, that kind of works. And that creates an opportunity for a minority community to elect a candidate of their choice. And that's the whole kind of point behind Alabama, and that's the whole what the Voting Rights Act is saying with regard to this. Um, you don't have to guarantee an African-American in this case wins. You just have to give a compact and cohesive racial, ethnic, or language minority community a chance to elect a candidate of their choice. And that gives you the minority opportunity language. Uh, then we go to Cooper v. Harris. That was 2017 out of North Carolina. Um, Justice Thomas switched over and joined the four liberals. I promised you there would be some bipartisanship here. Uh, Justice Tom And he, uh, he wrote a really interesting piece, but the line that I, I think stands up the best from that is he said, uh, race cannot be used as a proxy for party. Right, so basically, the North Carolina legislature was saying, we didn't draw these districts like that because they're black. We would never do that. That would be unconstitutional. We just drew them because they're Democrats, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a I'm getting out of racial gerrymandering by admitting to partisan gerrymandering, right? That's exactly what they're trying to do. Uh, and, and, and Justice Thomas was saying, no, 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 no. You were doing it, race predominated here, and you were doing it as a proxy for party. You might, I mean, Justice Thomas is no fan of the VRA, but he was saying you, you might be in this space because uh, you, you were trying to comply with the Voting Rights Act, but even then you can't let race predominate like that, uh, or nor can you use race as a proxy for party. Which brings us to two cases in Virginia. Uh, the first was about the congressional districts. We have a new fourth congressional district that I live in because of this case. Uh, and then the second is about the House of Delegates district that I think will probably turn the House of Delegates over to Democrats for the first time in 20-some years. Um, and that, so the first one is Person Hubala, and the second one is Bethune Hill. They're, they're both versus the State Board of Elections. Um, and the at issue in this case was that was a 55% threshold that the, um, the legislators set for a, how many black voting age population, BV, BVAP, so BVAP, how much you had to have in each district that was a majority minority district. So they ratcheted up to 55%. Uh, keep in mind when they were doing this, this was in 2011 and 2012 in Virginia. So it was before the Alabama v. Legislative Black Caucus case that said, never mind on the majority minority thing, focus on opportunity. Uh, so this was was that coming up up to head. I will say if you're if you're wondering about the politics of this, uh, uh, the maps for the House of Delegates passed with just as many Democrats percentage-wise as Republicans voting for it, including almost every member of the Legislative Black Caucus. So while there are a lot of Democrats today, and I would be one of them, who says that who would say that those maps are racially gerrymandered and did a lot to disenfranchise minority communities. Um, the minority communities' representatives at the table were all in favor of them, right? It made their district safer, just like any politician would care about. Um, uh, so, uh, and in Virginia, we also saw an explicit, you know, Your Honor, I did not do this because the Dem because they're black. Never. We did it because they're Democrats, right? So you see an explicit um, tilt towards partisan gerrymandering, and I think they knew what was what was available at the Supreme Court for them down the road, is that partisan gerrymandering is really hard to do. So, um, in this same decade, there were three states that embodied different cases on partisan gerrymandering that they thought would be the way to go. So there's three different ways of thinking about this. The first is out of Wisconsin. Um, that's uh, Whitford v. Gill. 
and that's the efficiency gap. You've probably heard about that if you've read anything on redistricting reform. I'm not a huge fan of it from a practical standpoint, but it's pretty good, right? It gets at what we're trying to get at, which is, uh, you know, an efficient gerrymander for team A uh, make sure that they maximize their votes that are available and waste as many of Team B's votes as possible, whether you're wasting them in a 80-20 <clears throat> race or a 60-40 you know, kind of race is different. Um, and and the, the efficiency gap gets at that from a mathematical perspective. And that's kind of with the, I mean, they, they got to work on this thing exactly because Kennedy said, maybe there's a math way to solve this, right? Uh, the second theory is out of North Carolina, um, and that's more of an outlier analysis. They really leaned on on some work out of Duke University, but also the folks at Tufts have done this as well. Uh, and it's basically they would have a supercomputer generate, you know, you put in your basic variables, generates 20,000 different maps, and you see this kind of nice bell curve form. Well, in, uh, in the North Carolina case, they would say, look, this map that the legislature passed is such an outlier that the criteria you said you abided by was, I mean, you're, you're lying, right? You were doing something else. Um, and then, uh, uh, I mean, by the way, a lot of this Justice Roberts would call uh, sociological gobbledygook, uh, which is worth noting. Um, and in Maryland, this is actually my favorite one, uh, Maryland has a, a First Amendment argument on this. So Maryland is actually the opposite party-wise, so Democrats were screwing over Republicans, and they, uh, they, they said that this is a, um, they kind of use you know, basic evidence, Martin O'Malley admitted to it, that kind of stuff, to say you're discriminating against us um, based on our, our political viewpoint. Okay, uh, so what did we get in when these two, this Maryland and North Carolina case, the Wisconsin case got sent back and dismissed subsequently, but what do we get from when we combine these two? Here's what I thought we get. Well, if there's ever been a time that you could have um, a ruling on partisan gerrymandering, you don't need a math test for this, right? Because what happens in, uh, in, uh, in North Carolina, the, the representative uh, Dave Lewis who drew the map said, we are drawing the maps to give partisan advantage to 10 Republicans and three Democrats because I do not believe it's possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and two Democrats, right? He openly admitted that. But again, a very much a, this isn't racial gerrymandering, this is political gerrymandering. Uh, and in Virginia, and, I mean, and in Maryland, you had um, Governor O'Malley going under oath in, the, in a deposition saying, yeah, we were trying to rig this for, for Democrats. So you've got not just like uh, a smoking gun, you have a signed confession, if you will. And I thought for sure this would be what could, could, could move us forward. Um, and instead, Chief Justice Roberts said no, right? It's kind of like we pulled the curtain back on the wizard and realized, oh, they're not going to help us. They're not going to help us solve this, this redistricting problem. Um, I, uh, basically, the, the takeaway is Roberts and the, and the, uh, and, and the in a coalition of 5-4 five, five, with the conservatives on the court said the federal courts aren't going to deal with this question of partisan gerrymandering anymore. Um, that's concerning on a whole number of levels. Uh, I will say that he did at least give us this bone. He said, uh, our conclusion does not condone excessive partisan gerrymandering, nor does our conclusion condemn complaints about districting um, to echo and to avoid, uh, not, not condemn them to echo and to avoid. The states, for example, are actively addressing the issue on a number of fronts. He mentions Florida, he mentions uh, Missouri, Michigan, and Colorado. Um, and, and I think that's great that he was acknowledging that because just a couple years ago in an Arizona versus, uh, Arizona versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, Roberts wasn't too keen on citizens' initiatives solving this issue. He, he, was, he was against uh, Ginsburg's opinion on that. Um, so I think Kagan's dissent had the best of this, right? She basically 
pulled no punches. For the first time ever, this court refuses to remedy a constitutional violation because it thinks the task is beyond its judicial capabilities. Um, and then, of course, she gets to the heart of the matter because Roberts was like, well, just vote the people out if you don't like them. But she mentions it's hard to vote the people out that rigged the system to keep them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so all of that to say that, that one of the big things Roberts had uh, tr trouble with was, pr I'm going to defend Roberts here a little bit, was proportionality. Um, the idea that, I mean, a lot, and, and Kagan cited in her opinion, in North Carolina, 53% of the vote went to Republicans, yet they get 10 out of 13 congressional districts. In Maryland, 65% um, of the vote was kind of the high water mark for Democrats, and they get seven out of eight seats. Right? That's, that's, that's crazy, proportionally. I mean, we have an intuitive sense that proportionality is fair, but there's certainly no hook in our Constitution that says it's there. And I think that's important to know. So they had a real problem with that. Uh, and then I think, let me give the counterfactual to Roberts. What would he have done if he would have written everything that I would have hoped for? All we really would have, at best from these cases, is a standard whereby if you blatantly admit it under oath or in legislative testimony, <clears throat> then it's illegal. And that's, I mean, for practical purposes of someone trying to solve this problem in Virginia, that's not really that helpful, right? Because they'll just stop saying it aloud, right? Um, so, uh, so I think that's, you know, that's, that's the way to kind of think about it broadly. Um, so uh, there's no judicial remedy at the federal court level for this. He does, however, much like the end of The Wizard of Oz, say that you had the power all along, guys, and says it's up to the states and up to Congress, though I don't think anybody's holding their breath for that, um, up to the states to do this. So here, here's, here's what I'll leave you with. Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger just wrote an op-ed with, with uh, Dave Daly and said that for the first time ever, or that they could come up with, Americans, a majority of Americans are living under minority rule. It's a weird place to be, right? But that's how good gerrymandering has gotten. Um, however, in the next round of redistricting, so in 2020, 20, the, the, the Congress is seated in 2023 that is a result of the new, new maps from 2021-2022, um, a majority of those congressional uh, uh, representatives will come from states that had redistricting reform of some kind or another. And I hope Virginia gets it. We passed an amendment in February, the first read of a constitutional amendment. We have to, it takes forever and a day for us to do that in Virginia. So we have to pass it again next year. So if you are a state legislative nerd, uh, get your popcorn because it'll be fun. Uh, and then we'll, it'll go to the ballot in November of 2020 for you all to hopefully vote yes on. So um, we're going to fix this because we apparently had the power all along. Thanks. <laughs>